0: Coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. that! You don't got time that, all Right? Let's go! break it! break it! Let it
1: cross.
2: Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your
3: attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson and Nick Springer on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN.
0: Depend on it. Hey, what's happening? Welcome into another edition of Rock Chalk Sports Talk.
1: Listen here, John Heyman. You have hurt my good friend, Derek Johnson. You will be hearing from me personally. For your outright blasphemous lies, that Aaron Judge—or should I say, arson Judge—was <laughs> going to the San Francisco Giants, and look at what you've done to my mm, friend. I'm broken. He's broken
0: beyond repair. You will be hearing from me and my attorneys. Because here's the thing: like the fact that, you know, I—I I didn't. Actually, expect Aaron Judge to sign with the Giants coming into the offseason and even throughout the whole process. And you would see certain bits of, oh, he's from this area and all this stuff. But at the end of the day, I was like, okay, he's going back to the Yankees, right? (laughs) Even if there was maybe like, I don't know, 20% of my thoughts saying, oh, but he could be a Giant. And then that happened yesterday. And I was like, oh, he's going to be a Giant. He is going to be a Giant. This is happening. Got my hopes up and crushed them. So, Thank you, John Heyman, for ruining my day yesterday. I'll be honest, I am like seriously mad about it today. And, like I, I was not expecting that to be the case. So this is John well, Heyman's fault. It's like one thing to
1: screw up breaking news on like literally, you know, some random thing, right? This is the biggest one of the biggest free agent signings in MLB <laughs> yes. history.
0: Yes. To get that wrong, like, dude, you got you have one job. You have one job. Yeah. Come on. Unbelievable, dude. You couldn't double check for Aaron freaking judge. Or arson judge. Yeah. Gosh. <laughs> so annoying. Uh, but, you know, I've spin on this. Uh, Aaron judges or arson judges' stats are uh, a little fluky because he had a fake ball, which we'll discuss later. True, yes. Stay
1: tuned for some breaking news.
0: We're also going to be joined by Jesse Newell to talk some uh, Chiefs football at 440 here. We've got Michael Swain of Fog.net going to join us at 340, and we're going to talk some uh, KU football recruiting Transfer portal with Michael. We didn't get to this yesterday. We'll just get to it now. Kansas takes on Arkansas in the Liberty Bowl, and and we'll do a further preview. We'll continue to yeah. Talk I mean, a little we bit. got yeah. We got, got three. Time, we right? got three weeks. Literally three weeks from today.
1: Oh yeah, three weeks point. from today.
0: KU Next football going to be out there.
1: We'll be bowling. I might might not in Memphis. Still don't know yet. In the great city of Memphis, Tennessee. Yep. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go to the world's or the country's largest Bass Pro Shop. I'm have yeah, a I good want time. updates from
0: all over the town. I want that. I want barbecue. <laughs> I want everything in between. Um, but we'll get you a little early preview <clears throat> on Arkansas. So 6-6, um, six and six, same record as Kansas. Obviously, they play in the SEC, but the SEC was a little more down this season. I mean, it wasn't like bad, right? They still had Georgia, the number one team. They still had Alabama, Tennessee. Those are two top 10 teams also. But there wasn't as much of the depth of teams this season in the SEC, where it's like the fourth team is ranked eighth, and the fifth team is ranked twelfth, and the sixth team is ranked fourteenth, and there's eight teams in the top 25, and then the teams who are ninth and ten are right outside the top 25. There wasn't as much depth this year. It wasn't as good of a league. You know, Arkansas goes six and six. Texas AM and goes 5 and 7 uh, Kentucky and Florida weren't yeah, can, nearly as good as people thought yeah, they were Yeah, both be. top 25 teams, and, and after Florida beat Utah to open up the season, uh, Miss- Mississippi State what, kind of top fifteen. fell off. They also. didn't even finish the season ranked after they started, what, seven and oh?
1: Yep, and Auburn was bad. Mm-hmm.
0: So it's 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 a six and six in the SEC. But this is not the same as like I remember Arkansas was six and six in I think Brett Bielema was like first or second year, and they I think they were ranked hmm. because of like how just loaded the SEC was. But they went nine and four last season. They had still a tough schedule this year when you add on the SEC and they they played a tough non-con too. Lost some key <laughs> players from last year, Traylon Burks, Chiefs amongst them. Uh, But they still brought back a a good amount of of some key players. And at one point early in the season, this was a top 15 team. They beat Cincinnati in the non-con, which was a really impressive win against a team who ended up still having a good season. Um, They beat South Carolina, who at the time didn't look like a a great win, but by the end of the season, certainly turned out to be that. They beat Ole Miss, um, who, yeah, again, even though they didn't finish ranked, like is an 8-4 team, like, solid win there. Uh, but then they had some weird losses. You lost to Missouri in the season finale. It was six a 6-6 six team at the time, losing record. Lost to Liberty, who, solid, non-Power 5 team, but yep. still, they're what? That's what, an 8-4 and four Liberty team that you lost yeah, to? Yeah, they,
1: they kind of fell off at the end of the season. Because they were, I think they
0: were 8-1 and one after yeah. they beat Arkansas. I team. think they were ranked, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, they were. Uh, and then they lost to or Texas a A&M, one, who, I mean, that one was still really weird because it was uh, that was a BS loss yeah the the, The BS kick hit the top of the upright and (laughs) fell out Um, but they still lost again A&M not good and then they lost by 23 to Mississippi State who is a borderline top 25 team but they lost by a lot so they've been very up and down I think would be the way of describing them which makes sense you're six and six that is the definition of kind of being up and down Uh, so I think they just have kind of like a, a high single game ceiling but probably a low floor I guess
1: yeah, yeah, it's one of those situations where maybe early in the game when they play KU, you'll kind of figure out which Arkansas team you're going to get. Are you going to get a team that's that has looked really, really good at times this season, or is it going to be more of an inconsistent
0: team? And that's kind of been the story of their season, like you said. Yeah. Um. So they've been that, but they have some very talented players all over the field, but they are going to yeah. be missing and this is a quite team, the important one. Yeah, this is a team that...
1: Is going to be in the kind of a, a boat where they might have some guys opt out.
0: Yes. Um, Drew Sanders opted out. That was yesterday. He is a projected, depending where you look, like some places have him being like a top twenty yeah. player for the NFL draft. Others second, have him as second, like second, second most sacks in the Olympic. SEC. Yeah, nine and a half sacks. Yep. A lot of tackles for losses. A lot of tackles in general. Uh, he was a transfer from Alabama. Very talented kid. He's skipping the game to enter the NFL draft. So that's certainly nice for the KU offense against them. KJ Jefferson is going to play in the game because he already announced he's coming back for next season of school. He's a beast, kind of a dual threat quarterback. He's a bit of a power runner, like Tyler Shuck. Like he is a big dude. This guy yeah. looks like a tight end, which is not good because Kansas struggled to bring down Tyler Shuck. Yeah, he's
1: a guy that early in the season when Arkansas beat Cincinnati and had a couple some success early, there were. Cam Newton comparisons. Yes. for this guy, right? Yep. Like he's big like dude. that's how that's how big he is. Like 6'4, 65 plus 240, 250 pounds. Like this is a a very very large quarterback that right, can also use listed. his legs.
0: He is 6'3, 243 pounds. Yeah. I mean, this dude is hard to bring down. He so is that, a that, large human. That, that that could pose a problem. Yes, that could. Um he is pretty efficient as a passer though. Like, I wouldn't say he's he's like the best passer or anything, but he's very efficient. He's a he's solid passer. He will beat you with his arm and just kind of tough in both those ways. Now, you combine him with his battery mate in the backfield, Raheem Sanders. He ran for over 1,400 yards, 6.5 yards per carry. That scares me for the Kansas run defense. Yeah, a run defense that obviously has struggled, right? I mean, you look at what
1: Texas was able to do, and even K-State really, like, that, that could be problems, right? They have they have fresh tape of a run defense that has been gashed by past Big 12 offenses. So that's definitely a concern.
0: Yes. So I don't love that. Um, Also, the fact that you get all this time off in between, maybe some of your D linemen get even healthier, more fresh legs, and maybe that helps you there. But Arkansas, you can say the same about maybe their offensive line. And that was the thing for Arkansas this year. When you combine Sanders, it – and KJ Jefferson, they ran for 200 or more yards in eight of their 12 games this season. So there's a good chance that they run for over 200 against the Kansas defense. And yeah, they had 240 or more rushing yards in half of their games. They had a season high of 335 rushing yards against Ole Miss. That's going to be the question to me. It's, you know, if, if they end up with 202 rushing yards, that's not good but I think you can live with that if they wind up with 300 rushing yards. It's going to be It could be, be a, a long day for the defense for sure because we've already seen that happen, right? We've already seen that happen
1: where the defense, when an opponent has been able to have that sort of success, I mean, look at what happened in the Texas game, right? It was, it was a blowout from start to finish when when the offense was able to to maintain the ball the way they were with B. John Robinson. Now obviously, th- this is an offense that's not – doesn't have that level of talent, but Raheem Sanders, as like you said, fourteen hundred yards. Like in the SEC, that's very impressive. Mm-hmm. Right, that's a very, very impressive line for for a running back to have. And and certainly when you've got a quarterback like that with KJ Jefferson, if if he's able to run the ball with a lot of success too, that just adds another level of where the offense can can be dynamic against this Kansas defense. And for KU, again, we we've kind of highlighted it quite a bit. It's it's not even really a schematic thing as much as it is sometimes they've just had games where they've struggle to tackle, right? And if this is a game where that happens against Arkansas, that could really really set you up for for a difficult day on the defensive
0: side of the ball. Yeah. Now on the other end when you look at Arkansas again, they're missing Drew Sanders, which is important as any defensive player that they have. Yeah, because um, they're
1: they're sixth in the country in sacks as a team yeah, this season, but obviously it's mostly him. Yeah, obviously Sanders. So they finished the year with 39 sacks, so you think Sanders had nine and a half, so a quarter of their production came from one player.
0: Well, and I'm, I'm sure, too, like there were several other sacks that other guys had as, just yeah, a, result as a result of him, his attention. Yeah,
1: for sure. So you kind of kind of have to take that in, into into account. And obviously, KU is top five in the country in sacks going up the season. So regardless of if Arkansas was going to have Drew Sanders or not, it's going to be a strength versus strength in that area where this Kansas offensive line has been really, really good at protecting the quarterback, whether it's been Jason Bean or Jalen Daniels. And for Arkansas, like, yeah, obviously their best players is not playing, but you figure their pass rush is still hoping yeah. to be effective. So that's kind of, I think, the big matchup offensively is when Kansas does decide to pass the ball, how effective will that pass rush be? But also, with Jalen Daniels now having basically a month to get back to full strength or get continue to be getting reps at full strength and after what we saw against K-State, like... You figure the option game has got to be a pretty big part of the offense coming into this game against Arkansas, and the option game is just another way that you can limit or redirect the pass rush of an opposing team. If, if that's just one more thing they have to consider as they're coming up the field to try to get the quarterback, that should also benefit to the Kansas offensive line and, and continuing to protect Jalen Daniels when they do uh, try to pass the ball.
0: 100%, and you give Andy Kotelnicki three months, or not three months, three weeks in between the game, <laughs> And he's going to probably have some extra wrinkles to the offense, trick plays that are going to kind of add a little bit more or maybe catch the defense off guard. So that's exciting. And, and yeah. I would imagine, like, part of, part of defending the option uh, as a defense, it really does take, like, team effort and being willing to sacrifice maybe not making the play to allow someone else to, like – and it certainly takes a lot of discipline. Yes, takes takes 100%, a ton of discipline, especially yeah. with the motion and stuff that Kansas is going to throw out there. But you might be in a position where you're a defender where you have to almost be like, hey, I'm going to hit the quarterback knowing full well I'm not going to get the tackle because he's going to have to pitch it to the running back and one of my uh, teammates can step up as opposed to being you know, selfish, saying, hey, I'm going to try to guard like in between the two guys so I can still try to make the tackle. Little things like that that if you're a team that is not 100% committed and into it playing in the bowl game, you're going to get burned. Yeah, that could definitely matter. And this
1: is an Arkansas defense that has given up some big games on the ground to some other opponents, right? So from that standpoint, it's kind of a strength versus a weakness for Kansas there. like Obviously, the run game for KU has been at times dominant this season. You're going to have Devin Neal with fresh legs coming off of a, a three-week hiatus. You're going to have Kai Thomas potentially fully healthy. Jalen Daniels, obviously healthy. And then uh, we kind of floated this last week a little bit, and I'm curious. Hopefully, we'll get a chance to ask of the coaches uh, coming up here in a couple weeks before when they have their media availability before the game. But, you know, Daniel Heishaw's injury was suffered at the beginning of October, and that's about a 10 to 12 week recovery period for him. So. I mean, is it that crazy to suggest that he might be available in some capacity for the game? I, I don't know. I mean, we're, we don't, we're not, we don't have any sort of idea on that. But hopefully, we might get the chance to ask Lance Leifold about that or something because that would be something else that could be suddenly very, very interesting for the KU offense, right? If suddenly Highshaw is able to, to get back and be available as well. But that's maybe a discussion for later on once we get closer to the bull game. But, but yeah, I mean, that's 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 a strength for KU as it has been all season and. On top of that, you add in the option game. And listen, We I just mentioned how the Arkansas offense is going to have tape of the KU defense struggling against the run game. Well, the Arkansas defense is not going to have that much fresh tape of KU running the option, right? I mean, think about it. They didn't really use it against Texas with Jalen Daniels because he didn't want to or for whatever reason. And against Kansas State, they did run some of it. But think about that. They're going to have to be looking back and reviewing you know, plays from September and early October to try to understand the option game that Kansas could potentially bring to this game with Jalen Daniels.
0: Yeah, which is tough. And you look at some of the games that opposing teams had against Arkansas's defense. There were holes available. Um, Ole Miss had 463 yards rushing against Arkansas. Alabama had 317. Missouri had 226. LSU had 200. Now, on the flip side, they have had five really good run-stopping games, so they have been kind of hit or miss. But you, should, you still should expect You should Kansas, be one of the better ones, right? Yes. You yeah. should still expect Kansas to be able to run against, against this defense. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they kind of have been hit or miss in all regards. Like, they've given up 325 or more passing yards on five occasions. And in total, eight of the 12 opponents against Arkansas have averaged more than six yards per play, which is a good number to be at if you're an opposing offense. For sure, and obviously I think
1: we have a lot of faith and a lot of confidence in the Kansas offense with Andy Koldicki and with Jalen Daniels. So this is a game that you expect the Kansas offense to have success, I think. I think that's a reasonable expectation coming into this game of the offense to be able to move the ball. This is not an elite defense. This is not one of the top 25 defenses in the country. This is not a, a team that's that relies on their defense. So this is a game where I think you should go into it expecting – the Kansas offense to have success. And by success, I mean, they should be able to put up at least 28 to 35 points, at least, you would think, uh, given, up, given facing this defense. And, again, there could be more opt-outs. There could be more opt-outs as well, particularly for Arkansas. So that's something to keep an eye on as well. But, yeah, to me, this is a game where I think you go into it with a lot of confidence that the Kansas offense is going to find success either on the ground or in the air. I think you, you have to trust Jalen Daniels. You have to trust Andy Koenig. You have to trust the offense to say, okay, we, listen, this is an offense that in the first five weeks of the season with with a fully healthy Jason Dalen Daniels, in four of their five games they were outstanding besides the Iowa State game, which Iowa State ended up being a top ten defense in the country. So I think you have to look at this and say, yes, the Kansas offense should be able to find success.
0: Mm-hmm. Which side of the ball do you look at as like it's going to, I don't know, like be more impressive or, or be more improved? Oh, yeah coming into this well that's a tough question because
1: on I think you could definitely make the case for the offense with now essentially a full capacity Jalen Daniels I mean we saw a little bit against K-State but I think you'll feel a lot more comfortable with this but on the other side you could also make the case of well the defense is going to have a month off hopefully that'll allow them to to get their legs back under them and maybe they have an improved game but I I mean just based off of what the offense can do I think you have to lean offense here I think you have to lean on the offense and say, okay, Jalen Daniels, go go be great. Go be the guy that was getting a lot of Heisman buzz four weeks into the season. Go go be that guy. And if that's the case, then I think it's got to be the offense that you'll see a, a major step up from what they were doing in the latter half of the season. And, again, that's not a knock against Jason Bean or anything, but it's just clearly the offense is
0: is going to be, I think, better in this game. That's what I would expect. Yeah, I, I would expect it to be better in – Having more with Jalen being healthy and stuff helps, but I do wonder if just that extra time in between to if we go back to why has the defense struggled, tackling well, I mean, issues, consider, guy being hurt, but, has I been mean, hurt. The argument you make for the defense is look what
1: they did off a bye against right. Oklahoma State. Right. I mean, and that was and one the of the best performances that, of the season.
0: You know, we've talked about that a lot of their struggles, has it's been noted, that it hasn't necessarily been a like adjustment thing, it's been yeah, it's more not about been a schematic just, thing. Guys just not fully yeah doing the right thing at all times. And so maybe those few extra weeks in between get you in the right mindset, get you to where you're feeling more comfortable because you don't just have to use all this time to game plan for Arkansas. You can use some of it to just, you know, refocus on the fundamentals and get yeah. back to some of those scheme things. Yeah, I thought
1: it was really interesting uh the audio played from Sam Burt where he was talking about how you know, it was it was kind of a little bit disconcerting to be practicing for a little bit with no opponent in mind. Right. And maybe those are the types of practices where you do work more on some of that other stuff. Where, you know, it was so he was talking about that they were practicing in between their last game of the season and before it, the Liberty Bowl was announced. So basically before they knew exactly who they were going to play. And maybe those are the types of practices you could have where you do, you are able to make some, some concerted improvement or effort into improving some of those other areas.
0: Yeah. He's Nick Springer. I'm Derek Johnson. We're going to take a break here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. We've got. Michael Swain joining the show in about 15 minutes from right now. This is RCST on KLWN, Depend on it. Welcome back in to Rock Chalk Sports Talk on KLWN, klwn klwn.com and the KLWN app. Joined now by Michael Swain of fog.net, 24-7 sports, and uh, wanted to kind of dip into the, I don't know, KU football, where things are at, as the transfer portal has opened up and recruiting and everything. We were just talking about the Calvin Clements decommitting, and that certainly... You know, raises a lot of uh, interest around the area. Three-star prospect who is committed to Baylor, and um, I guess right now, if if we want to start there, Kansas has, I believe, eleven high school commits of the thirteen players they have. I think committed overall, uh, thematically or I guess just player-wise, if anybody sticks out, what what kind of sticks out to you about what they're bringing in so far from the high school class?
3: Yeah, I think there's a few things. You know, I think high school recruiting gives you a good idea of what the coaching staff looks for in players at certain positions. Uh, you know, you look at the, the numbers right now, right? A lot of defensive linemen, that makes up a good portion of the class. And I think you're seeing kind of what Key's looking for in the trenches this cycle. And really, I think, under Lance If you look at someone like Marcus Calvin from Florida, you know, 6'2", a little bit under 300 pounds. But he's a basketball player, moves really well, really good athlete someone that you might imagine playing kind of the Eddie Wilson role on defense. You see someone like Blake Harrell from Iowa. You know, he's 6'4", 245 pounds. He's a little bit young for a senior in high school. But he's someone that's going to grow into being like a three-tech to play a little bit more like the the Caleb Sampson role. And then you got someone like Tony Terry from Missouri who's kind of going to be able to grow into kind of that strong side defensive end role. And I just think you're seeing kind of the the things that Kansas is looking for in those defensive linemen kind of bear itself out in this recruiting class. I think that's interesting. I think you can look at someone like Jamil Croft, who at the moment is the highest rated commit, you know, plays for Martin Luther King in Detroit, right? The Detroit connections continue for this recruiting class, but Croft has had a huge senior season, massive. I mean, he got a lot of early offers, but I think if a lot of those schools hadn't offered early, they'd be offering him right now. That's how good of a season he had. He played on both sides of the ball. Um, It was super dominant. So I think overall, it's just an idea of what Lance Leipold's coaching staff looks for. I think we've talked about the wide receivers in the past going back to to the summer, but it's a good mixture of players. So I think overall, it's not a class that's going to rank super high. It's not a class that's going to have a ton of guys, not going to be 20. It's going to end up being about 15 probably in terms of the high school um, numbers. And I think it's just giving us a better idea of what Lance Leipold and his coaching staff they'd be looking for in the future.
0: Well, and then also we have the, I guess, I don't know what to consider, like Daryl Johnson Jr., because Juco player, if Mm -hmm. that counts as the transfer portal or regular recruiting or whatnot. But uh, you bring him on, Logan Brown comes into the program, which is probably the biggest chip coming on from the former Wisconsin player who was a former five-star recruit. And I know, again, kind of going back to the Calvin Clemens thing, which you know, this hasn't mm-hmm. happened. It's not that KU's okay, gotten a commit there, but certainly people want to kind of draw lines between the two things. Uh, when you look at these offensive tackles, it, it it seems like, I mean, these guys are gigantic, right? I mean, you're talking about with, with DJ Johnson Jr., oh, yeah. what, 6'7", 3'15", Logan Brown's gigantic, Calvin Clements is like 6'7", and again, not that he's committed or anything, but um, is, is that maybe an emphasis for this team, or is that just kind of something that, that it just happens to be, hey, the guys they've gotten happen to be very large humans? Oh, I think it's an emphasis. I think you look at Kansas in the trenches, they are undersized, right?
3: I think Lance Leifold talked a lot about it you know, last spring, about how much weight kind of the offensive linemen and defensive linemen had put on, but that they're still undersized. And I think you saw that this year, the discrepancy. KU is no longer at the point where it can't compete in the trenches with middle-of-the-road Big 12 programs. You saw KU dominate Iowa State in the trenches. You saw them outplay West Virginia in the trenches and Duke and but then all of a sudden when you go and play the big boys, Baylor, Texas, you know, Oklahoma, those schools have another level of size in the trenches. And I think that's what you're seeing Kansas do now is instead of closing the gap to other Big Twelve teams, now they're really trying to close the gap to the top of the Big Twelve and being able to compete whenever the new Big Twelve really starts to take over when Texas and Oklahoma leave that's going to be kind of what Kansas is trying to do where, you know, Lance one and his coaching staff is going to try and set themselves up for when the quote unquote big boys, the guys that recruit those, you know, the massive six, four, 300 pound defensive tackles. Once those schools leave, are you able to dominate the other defensive lines? And I think players like this would help. And clearly Logan Brown is going to be able to do that. I mean, Daryl Johnson's going to have a red shirt year to work with. And then two years in addition to that. So you got him in the program for a few years and, I just think overall you're gonna see this coaching staff try and improve the size in the trenches in the transfer portal, whether that be, you know, the junior college ranks, whether that be on offense or defense. I just think you're gonna see this coaching staff really try and close the gap on the the top tier Big Twelve programs in the trenches because Lance Laple just talked about it. That's where everything starts with this program, right? You can have all the sweet running backs and wide receivers and quarterbacks and linebackers and safeties, but if you can't block or shed blocks, it's really
0: hard to win football games. And so I think that's exactly what the coaches are trying to do. I know we have plenty of time with, you know, after the season and in the off season to discuss this sort of stuff, but uh with Logan Brown, is that someone you expect to come in and, and be a starter and be one of their best offensive linemen right away? He should.
3: He should doesn't mean you will, right? You know, you think about transfers a lot. They transfer for a reason. And Logan Brown, you know, played a little bit at Wisconsin, didn't play a ton. It's not like they lost their starting left tackle for the last two seasons to the transfer portal. Um, He should, though. And I think if everything goes to plan, I think you'd like for him to be your starting left tackle at the beginning of next season. But, again, you just don't know sometimes. And it's why getting a guy in in January is important, because you get him basically a full year, to acclimate and he'll get spring practice and then he'll get the summer workouts and fall camp to really hone in on, on what this scheme is like and and what there is to compete with. So I do think that, you know, ideally he should be your starting left tackle, but again, until he gets on campus, you get him in practice. It's really hard
0: to say. Talking with Michael Swain. You can check out all his work fog.net here. You, You mentioned expecting kind of the Kansas high school class to be around 15. Um, Obviously, this year is a little bit different because they can go past the 25-man class, get up to 85. Mm-hmm. That was obviously the case last year, too, but that rule came in during the offseason after a lot of some of the recruiting stuff. I, I don't know if, if you have any idea of how close Kansas is to that kind of 85 scholarship limit, but uh, if they're only bringing on a couple more high school kids, that probably means, what, they're bringing on 10, 15 kids out of the transfer portal? Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, and I think they're going long-term if we're looking ahead. I-, I think just in general, I think fans should expect 15 high school kids a year, 5 JUCO and, and 5 Portal, or, or 10 really kind of your transfer, if you will. I think that's how recruiting classes will be built at Kansas underland Lance Leipold. I think that's how they're going to try and do it. Um, I think you look at the numbers of it, and it's going to depend on what happens outgoing-wise. During the season, I-, I think Kansas was kind of in the high 70s, very low 80s in terms of the numbers. They weren't at 85, but they're getting close. Now it's kind of a question of, okay, who's transferring out? You're losing kind of, what, 11 guys to graduation? Um, you know, you're know, you kind of looking at this being about probably 25 to 30. I need to go look at my, my numbers here, but about that in terms of possible guys you can add. And you saw on that 22 transfers and six high school guys last year. Um, i when you increase the high school number, right, the transfer number is going to go down. I don't think it's going to be another 20-something class. But I do think this offseason, KD is going to try and get as close as they can to the 85. And I think they're going to have a really, really good chance of
0: doing it. So if, you know, that's kind of the case and, and you're waiting on players to leave. So far we've seen, I think, a handful of guys, Steven McBride, Gavin Potter, Eric mm-hmm. Gilliard, Edwin White uh, among them. And it seems like we haven't seen – I don't know like it, you almost go into every offseason for every team and expect like everyone to lose 10ish guys or something yeah. like that in the portal maybe more in some cases um the fact that we've only seen that handful where even a couple of them with like Potter left kind of midway through the year uh do you see that as something where we're going to maybe see more guys leave over the coming days is it something where we wouldn't see it till after the bowl game or Is it just getting to a point where maybe they're not expected to lose as much as maybe some other schools?
3: Yeah, well, I don't think they're going to lose as much compared to other schools. Um, I think Kansas is in a really good position in terms of the portal. You look at the two deep, and it's a lot of guys that played a lot and can return. And so I don't think you're really going to lose a bunch from the two deep, right? You lose someone like Eric Gilliard, fine. You know, he played what, you know, the the eighth most – or the what was it seventh most snaps of any linebacker or something like that it's not like he was playing a ton even if he's on the two deep and so i think in terms of the timing of it i think there's kind of a few different waves you'll see there's obviously kind of this first week wave of a lot of guys that are itching to get in you mentioned the names then i think there's probably gonna be a wave after the bowl game once everyone kind of gets a feel during the bowl practices of okay am i trending up am i trending down in terms of my playing time where am i on the depth chart and then going to the spring, that's kind of when the next portal window opens. And so I think at the end of the day, by the time you kind of close the portal in next August, I do think KU will have lost double-digit players. I just think that's a fact of college football its going to happen. But I think the fact that Kansas has not had any surprises at this point in time is huge because I think there's always that worry with name likeness, the tampering that happens, that a program like Kansas might struggle to keep a player that a big-time college football program might want. So I think it's huge that at this point in time, Kansas has not lost any super big contributors to the portal. I think it's a credit to the players buying in, but also I think just the culture around the team where I think guys like it and guys like each other and they want to be around. And guys are thinking, well, why do I want to try and leave? Because if you leave, you're running a risk. You know, like something like 40% of the guys that enter the portal find a home. And that's not even considering going down a level, right? How many guys that transferred from KU last year went down a level or two so I think it's a risk and for guys that are enjoying their football enjoying their time at Kansas there's really it's not worth taking
0: when you look at some of the additions that they're going to want to make in the portal uh, the offense could have a majority almost all of their starters back to next season um, you look at the defense the defensive line going to be losing a lot of players they just hit the the portal hard for linebackers last year and it didn't totally overhaul things but certainly I'd imagine that'll be a, a point of emphasis secondary has a lot of guys who are going to be progressing to, to like junior seasons possibly with you know Burroughs and Bryant and whatnot um do you see one position or, or maybe a couple positions that they're most going to try to strike with the transfer portal
3: oh it has to be defensive
0: tackle it has to be you're losing your top three guys
3: you know Sam Burt, Caleb Sampson, and Eddie Wilson all off the door and you want to play six guys. So you're losing three. You've got kind of two guys in the program, and and D.J. Withers and Tommy Dunn, who the coaches absolutely love. Those guys will take a step forward, but you're still looking at at losing some key guys, and you're going to need some ready-made players to come in and and contribute. So I think defensive tackle is going to be a huge one. I also look at defensive end. Can you get some more help there? The drop-off when Lonnie Phelps left the field last year was pretty stark, and we all know how good Lonnie is, but – you also know that he bang- got banged up this year. And I don't know if you can expect him to play every single snap of every single game next year or the year after. So I think just defensive line for me, it, they need to go out and get three-plus guys um, spread across defensive tackle, defensive end. And some of that might come in the junior college ranks. We'll kind of see where the coaching staff decides to pivot. But I just look at that and I say you have to improve those positions because we talked about the trenches earlier well if all of a sudden you're relying on two redshirt sophomores as kind of your main two guys with say ronald mcgee like that's not ideal you want some old veteran players that can hold their own in there so i just look at defensive line and say if they don't improve that that that's a huge question mark
0: yeah i I think i agree that d line even linebacker again even after it happened last year Mm -hmm. um as far as Players or, or names who are out there, whether it's the portal, whether it's high school recruiting that you've found Kansas fans maybe most interested in, or just names that are maybe popping up the most right now. Is there anybody that we should be kind of on the lookout for to, to see what their decision is going to be soon?
3: Yeah, I think, well, obviously, Calvin Clements is mm-hmm. one if you want to go high school, right? You know, that's one that KU kind of finished second very closely to, and now he's not going to Baylor, you know, kind of wonder what's up there. Um, Gage Keys is one from Minnesota. Jim Panagos offered him and signed him at Minnesota. So Panagos worked at Rutgers before Kansas and then Minnesota before Rutgers, and he signed Keys to Minnesota. So that's one to watch. KU was offered. I think Panagos was up there a few days ago to go visit him in person. So that's one. Um, I wish I had my list in front of me here, else i give you more. But those are a couple. We've got plenty of the kind of coverage on FogNet that fans should check out. But. It's crazy, man. There's so many names that are coming through each day that you got to check out. So it's a uh, pretty wild time.
0: Yep, absolutely. All right, I got some crossover questions to finish up here. Uh, more likely to cover the spread, Kansas versus Arkansas in the Liberty Bowl or Kansas versus Missouri on Saturday, which I haven't seen a line come out for, but we'll just assume. I think on Ken Palm, it's a three point game right now.
3: Uh, I'll take both.
0: Um, now, I'll,
3: I'll take probably a better chance of covering it against Arkansas. They're losing so many guys. And you're get the classic SEC trope of "oh, we didn't care about the cool game." So I'm already getting out in
0: front of that one. Love it. Uh, more weeks for Kansas basketball this season ranked in the top five, or KU football next season in the top twenty-five.
3: Oh, K basketball in the top five this year. That's getting in the getting in the AP top twenty-five in football is a challenge, and I think that Kansas fans saw that. So. You're already pretty close with the basketball team, so I'll take that one.
0: It is. was talking to Kevin Flaherty yesterday, though. He was saying if they look impressive, beat Arkansas, bring all these players back, there's a chance they could be preseason top 25. But, uh, yeah, I mean, certainly there's more weeks to work with, too, in basketball. Uh, More points. Exactly. Jalen Daniels versus Arkansas. So he only gets the points if he scores the touchdown, passing, running, whatever. Or Jalen Wilson Mm -hmm. versus Missouri. Oh, yeah, Jalen
3: Wilson versus Missouri, I think,
0: that he's in for another 20-something, 20-10 and game against them. So I'll rock with Jaywell. All right. He is Michael Swain. You can check out all his work, fog.net. Subscribe to the site. Michael, appreciate the time.
3: Awesome. Thanks, Derek.
0: That was Michael Swain, fog.net, 24-7 sports, joining us here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. One hour down, two to go. We got Jesse Newell joining us in the 4 o'clock hour, the return of Florida Man Mad Libs in the 5 o'clock hour, and uh, some other... Talk in between. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. You're listening on FM 101.7, 1320 KLWN, KLWN.com, or the KLWN app, or in the future, the KLWN podcast. We'll be back after this time out. Kansas City Royals have a new player. They just uh nope, not a free agent signing. One out of the Rule Five draft. Sherwin Newton, third baseman, who taking Bobby Witt's spot. It's official. Okay. Bobby doesn't even play third base. I minutes. know. Well, he did last year, but they're going to move him to short this year. Um, we're going to try to have David Lesky on uh, probably, I don't know, sometime next week or something to, to kind of catch up. He just had a baby, too. What's up with that, dude? Matt Tate, what is up David that? Lesky, all hmm. our guests having babies. The So the real what's going on over there. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, well, the actual hey, what's going on the over there is – does have to deal with balls in a different way that would be baseballs and uh this is certainly an interesting story especially after the heels of last year in the MLB uh so this, yeah, there's, there's a lot to unpack here yeah this story comes from Bradford William Davis of Insider and i'm going to be reading some different excerpts from the piece i highly recommend going to check it out i'm not going to read everything here um, also, some of the stuff I'm going to get to is like out of order in the article, but uh, just kind of segmented it out in certain ways. Because basically, the MLB has. I don't know. This is like the new. It's its not to the same level as like the steroid type of stuff, but certainly well, interesting, there's, there's interesting. There's always going to be controversy. Of course. There's always
1: going to be controversy there.
0: Yes. So. Um, The story starts out talking about Justin Verlander, like back in 2017, noticed that the balls used in the World Series were slicker than normal. Last year, Insider was the one that reported that there were two distinct types of baseballs in circulation during the 2021 season, something that the league had not disclosed at the time. But when they were called out about it in the aftermath, they admitted it. uh, But one ball had a center weight roughly two and a half grams heavier than the other, making it further uh, or carry further off the crack of the bat. He might be saying two and a half grams, that's nothing. We'll get to an excerpt here coming up later in the story that shows you just how much that can have. Um, Chris, uh, There's all sorts of like MLB players who spoke up during this article and, uh, and kind of talked about this. Chris Bassett, who is a free agent pitcher right now, should get a nice little payday, good player. He said, MLB has a very big problem with the baseballs and they're bad. Everyone knows it. Every pitcher in the league knows it. They're bad. MLB doesn't give a damn about it. We've been told our problems with the baseballs. They don't care. And then, so at a press conference in uh, July, before the All-Star game, Rob Banford, commissioner of the MLB, acknowledged that the league had used the two baseballs after the insider report came out, which is certainly interesting they didn't do it beforehand or during the aftermath, kind of like a, oh, we got caught, we better fess up to it. Um, But he also... He chalked the ball variants up to COVID-era manufacturing issues at the Rawlings plant in Costa Rica, and the league claimed it distributed the two balls randomly for use in games, which is certainly sure. interesting because randomly, part of the study from last year was that they found that most of the games with the ball that jumped more were like Sunday night baseball games <laughs> or games on national television. <laughs> certainly interesting, Rob. Uh, but Manfred promised from the podium that was all over. However, according to a new analysis, uh, more than 200 balls used in games during the 2022 season that Meredith Wills, who is a Society for American Baseball Research award-winning astrophysicist. That's a great title. Conducted. Okay, that is not true. League used not just two balls this year. They used three balls what? this year. Three? um. How dare they? (laughs) Uh, So they have the the different three ones. They have the the lighter one um, that is less bouncy. Then they have the more deadened balls. And those those are the two from last year. The deadened balls are the ones that they claimed they were were going to use for this year. Yes. And then they have the, the third ball that got added in this year that was not around in 2021 but was for 2022. That for the purpose of this story, they deemed the Goldilocks balls. Because they said not too, you know, in Goldilocks, it's not too warm, not not too too cold, not too light. just right, you know? And so those ones are just right. Not in terms of them being just right in terms of those being the best baseballs to be of use. Maybe they are. But in that they're in between the super dead ones and the super, you know, bouncy ones. The more I got into the story,
1: the more I began to question
0: who is the leading authority on determining
1: what the best baseball is that needs to be used in games. Somebody, right? Like, because, like,
0: somebody, I don't it, know who. Because,
1: like, what, like, what? I mean, obviously, if you're a pitcher, you want a ball that doesn't travel as far, mm. and obviously, if you're a hitter, you want a ball that travels further. So, how do who is the who is the who is the main authority on this? Because it certainly isn't the MLB. They just no. make whatever baseballs they
0: want. Yeah, and so there were a bunch of balls that had different, like, basically weights, which could come from. Uh, you know, wounding in the core tighter different ways that you can do it. And it might only be one gram or two grams of a difference. Again, you might be wondering, well, is it that, is it really going to change things? If it is only the difference between a few feet, who cares? Well, a one gram difference in baseball, just one gram, nearly imperceptible to some can be significant when played out. The Korean baseball organization decided to deaden its ball in 2019. It did so by increasing its size slightly and adding a gram in weight. That's one, it. One gram. One gram. Home runs dropped by a third. That. Let me repeat that. One third of home runs were gone. So, if there were, if a team hit... If you had 100 home runs yes, in, the, in the regular now season. Yes, or now yeah, you know 65, 66. 70, right? Yeah, 66. That is insane for one gram. So, to act like, oh, it's just a small difference, who cares? No, it has a very big difference on, on how so games are
1: going. So, has this story where they repeatedly claim... And I'm sure to get more to this, Derek, where by the inference says, oh, well, it's only natural to have a standard deviation of the weight of baseballs because each baseball is lovingly handcrafted and <laughs> handwoven. <laughs> and so it's only natural that with
0: all these handcrafted baseballs, there would be some deviation in the weights. Yep. Sure. Sure. Whatever you say, man. Um, Wills, the, the researcher astrophysicist, found that heavier balls were made in certain weeks lighter balls made in other weeks, and Goldilocks balls made in still other weeks. And the importance of that is, so if you peel open the baseball, it has like the, basically stamped on there, the the manufacture date. And so if it was, if it truly was something where what you just said, where it was just, hey, it was the handmade balls, like sometimes they're going to be made differently. They're going to be stored differently at different temperatures and humidities. Then you would think the differences in how the ball reacts they would all have, like, the same batch date or around same batch dates where they weren't where it was just like, okay, clearly they were all made the same day, but now they're performing differently. That would make sense. The fact that all of the lighter balls were made in different weeks than all of the heavier balls than all of the Goldilocks balls and that each one classified into its own were made on different dates kind of tells you that, yes, they were designed differently (laughs) as a whole. (laughs) One player told Insider that one of Manfred's top lieutenants warned a players' union official not to let players send any balls to Wills after last year because of the fact that they had... Uh, a different, you know, article about this, and so they basically said no third-party testing. They warned that the league could fire any non-union team employees who helped their research. Uh, but nonetheless, they still amassed a bunch of baseballs from sources around the league. Yeah, I think they ended up with 204 different baseballs. Yes. and uh, this part of the story is hilarious to me. Like,
1: you've got a natural physicist st- testing baseballs, and MLB is like, "Hey,
0: you mm-hmm. could get fired. We're gonna blacklist. Easy, dude. We're gonna blacklist this this lady from." Using our baseball. Imagine being in an organization where you're like, you know, third-party testing is a bad thing. We want to know <laughs> less information because clearly they're trying to cover something up. So this is super interesting too. Part of this article, the Goldilocks ball, so the one that is, uh, not quite as as springy as the the yeah, other one from de- last de- year. to be, I guess, slightly juiced. Yes, is how you would term. But term definitely, it? Really definitely more juiced than the, the original juiced. one that they used in the other games. Okay, it was yeah. found in. Most in one of three situations, postseason games, including the World Series, the All-Star Game, Home Run Derby, regular season games that used balls with special commemorative stamps, such as the Texas Rangers 50th anniversary ball on the outer leather. So keep in mind, the games were most of them were nationally televised, right, where a lot of people are tuning in, yeah. World Series postseason All-Star Game hey, we're going to have a large TV audience. Why don't we make it a more entertaining game? Higher runs, more home runs. <clears throat> the, the, this, is, this is where it gets super interesting, too. The only Goldilocks ball we obtained from the regular season that did not have the commemorative stamps were from Yankees games. Oh. So you might be saying, okay, what's what's going on there? Well, if you might have remembered, Aaron Judge was in the midst of a historic home run chase trying to pass Ooh. Roger Maris's. American League record and what some consider oh, a record. Oh, you mean San Francisco Giant Aaron Judge. No. Nope. Oh, that Aaron nope. Judge. No. Wrong guy. Oh. I hate you. Arson Judge? No, that... Not Arson him Judge either? is a Giant. Arson Judge is forever oh, okay. a Giant. Aaron okay. Judge is not. Okay. The Sorry. Yankees... This is interesting, too, because some of the Yankees' pitchers were like, what's going on with the ball? And... The Yankees were one of the few teams that did not meet with Rob Manfred, according to pitcher and team union rep Jamison Tyon, who is still waiting for a meeting with the commissioner as late as October 2nd, the last Yankees' home game of the regular season. He never got to speak with Manfred along with Yankees' teammates. Tyon did recall one league official approaching him in the locker room during the second half of the season to see if the veteran pitcher had noticed, quote, anything different about the baseballs lately. Okay. Here is what
1: I will say about this whole situation.
0: Dude, any Yankees fan who's like, this is the real home run record, eat it. <laughs> eat it.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay, listen. This is my opinion. I, I'm
1: just... This is just me. I'm a fan. I, other people can feel differently. I don't care what baseball you use. I don't care if you use the dead ball, the Goldilocks ball. You can make up any name for the baseball, whatever baseballs you want to use. I don't care, right? But I think... The heart of this story that you're try- we're trying to get to here is just be transparent about yes.
0: whatever you're doing. Yes. Right? Like, I don't care what baseball you use. Or you can juice the that. ball all you want. Just use the one. If you want to use the juice ball, great, but use it for every game. It shouldn't be different game to game, right? Exactly. I don't care what ball you use. Yes. I don't. No, now, I, I, understand. I prefer the juice ball. I'm now, good with the juice ball, but use it for every
1: game. I understand that, you know, pitchers and whatever not would probably have some gripes with that. But uh, as from a fan perspective, we don't care. To, to, to quote Stephen A. Smith, we don't care. Okay, I don't
0: care what, what baseball you're using. Just a little transparency is all we're asking yes. for, I think, here. So they say in the article we don't know whether judge hit a goldilocks ball on his way toward breaking the record but we do know that the league keeps track of information that would permit it if it wanted to know which balls gets used in each game to where they could hypothetically say we want these balls in this game we want those in the other one and according to two sources familiar with the mlb's ball shipment process the league not only directs where its balls are sent it also knows which boxes its game compliance monitors see what that's crap. Yeah, an MLB source who asked not to be named to protect them from league discipline, uh, but whose identity is known to Insider said that before each game, the league's game compliance monitors, quote, record the batch number. In this case, a six character label placed on each Rawlings box and the quantity of baseballs used for that game. Then the league source said compliance monitors send an email to the supervisors with that information. And as as part of this, you have like certain players who are trying to help with the study because they see this and they're like, something shady is going on. San Francisco Giants outfielder Austin Slater, who needs judge when we got Austin Slater, came across the story in 2021 and wanted to get to the bottom of the issues. So when he uh, expressed the desire to collect balls to send to Wills for analysis, he received a warning from the commissioner's office. Stand down, send to the form of a text message came via a Players Union official who was relaying the league's executives' displeasure, and Slater said that the MLB executive specifically mentioned the league does not want any game balls going to wills and that the league could fire anyone linked to giving out baseballs the threat worked obviously if you're a player you're not going to get fired the team isn't going to say we're releasing you for this yeah i mean who cares if you're hitting juice baseball yes slater was he's a part of the mlbpa subcommittee he was worried about non-union staff who might have like somebody who was a part-timer or working in the clubhouse that went and retrieved the ball for him getting punished and he didn't want somebody else uh, helping out, but that just kind of shows you that clearly something's amuck. If the league is basically denying all this stuff in public, but then under or trying to be under wraps is telling people yes. like, "No, don't do this." You Anytime I mean? you're issuing a stark warning of don't do anything, that's like the that's like the rule number one of yeah. red flag. Like, I, I didn't take Sherlock Holmes to figure out <laughs> something weird's going on. How about some of these quotes from players? Clayton Kershaw. Um, Sometimes you see the exit velocity and the launch angle, and you put it together, and that should be. Go- uh, and that should be going home run. Like the guy hits it 105 miles per hour at a 30 degree launch angle. That's probably a home run everywhere. But sometimes, for whatever reason, the same guy hits it the same way, and it's an out. Um, you have yeah, Max- I mean, I mean. <sighs> There's so many different
1: other factors you could point to for besides sure. the baseball there. Like I don't know how true I mean, you know. No, for sure. If it's a
0: colder day or if it's a hue more yeah. you know, whatever. I mean, I don't know I don't know if I buy I don't know how much I buy that. This one from Max Scherzer. I mean, these are notable pitchers. If a baseball is random, the way MLB described it, you would see a rainbow of flavors, of weights on baseballs. Then um but if you see two distinct weights being manufactured, then it's only rational to assume that you know how to make the two weights. And if you know <laughs> how to make the two weights, that's then that's intentional. Not random. But that's a good point. That kind of refutes the yes. idea of, <laughs> oh, each hand, each baseball is hand-crafted, hand-woven. Hand why wouldn't you weigh them after you make it? <laughs> he adds to it, when you have numerical data suggesting what you have, the finger does get pointed at the MLB. And that's completely fair for the players to ask the question. We don't feel like we're being told the whole answer. Last quote here from Nick Castellanos. There's a drive to deep left. No. Uh, in the NFL, there was Deflate Gate. It happened one time and people were punished. Here, we use multiple balls and nothing happens. Well, I mean, people were kind of punished. Sure. Sort of. Wait, for this? No, no, weren't. for No, for, for Deflate Gate. I think, did I read that wrong? It said he happened one time and people were punished for Deflate Gate. Anyway. No, but I'm saying, like, Deflate Gate was like, they were kind of punished. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Sure. So something needs to happen, but nothing probably will. So yeah, long story short, even we don't really know what's going on over there. No, nope, not really. He's Nick Springer. I'm Derek Johnson. Jesse Newell, Kansas City Star, talks Chiefs with us next on the other side. Welcome back in. This is Rock Shock Sports Talk with Nick Springer, Derek Johnson here on KLWN. And we catch up now with Jesse Newell of the Kansas City Star To talk a little Chiefs football here, Kansas City falls to Cincinnati on Sunday, and I I guess we'll we'll start with, uh, I don't know, the the microscopic view of it with the game itself. Um, When you went back and and looked at some of the different things that happened in the game or or some of the big plays of the game, what kind of stood out to you about what went wrong for the Chiefs?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, if you go microscopic, I think it's, A couple pretty obvious things that are out there you know the chiefs have the ball fourth quarter up seven and your hall of fame tight end fumbles you know that's a that's a big play i think if the chiefs go down and score there get a field goal you love their chances to win the game um so you know there's some things like that offensively uh three-man rush late when the chiefs had third and short to be able uh to potentially go up with a touchdown and can't get that picked up you know the defender goes right around Orlando Brown looked like there was some miscommunication there with Nick Allegretti, who was in there, um, you know, subbing in for Joe Tooney, who was out for his second straight game. So small things there, but the Chiefs had two receivers open. MBS was open and Travis Kelsey was open. If you get just a little bit more blocking against a three-man rush, then all of a sudden you convert that, you have a chance to go win the football game again. But defensively, you know, I I think that this was something that Andy Reid talked about going in, and it's something that'll be better for moving forward is that, Technically, I think Josh Williams played pretty well. You know, like he was in on coverage. He had his arms in the right place, those sorts of things. But uh, as far as, like, team-wise or doing things the right way, I, I think it was pretty rough on him. And there were times where, like, he had help to the outside. And instead of, like, forcing to the guy to the outside, he would let him back inside. And we saw some big catches from Jamar Chase where it was more that Joshua Williams didn't understand where his help was coming from rather than, you know, him playing bad um, fundamental football, I guess you would say, like doing what's in his control to do. It's more like a, a mind game. And so, yeah, I think the Chiefs are going to learn from that. You know, their pass rush was not good enough. There's things they can do in that end. and uh, Obviously, potentially helping uh, the defensive line get after the quarterback a little bit better. That's been a struggle against the Bengals every single time they've played in the last three times. But I do think when it comes to Joshua Williams, the young quarterbacks, that uh, this can be a learning experience for what the Chiefs need moving forward. And I think uh, that – Physically, he's ready to play at this level, but mentally maybe needs a little bit more work. And if he would have been able to stop a few more of those plays on third downs, then the Chiefs might win that football game anyway. And so, a learning experience, but a very costly one, because the Chiefs otherwise would have had that number one seed basically locked up.
0: Yeah, and that's that's kind of something we were talking about yesterday, that You know, the path is still very much there for the one seed. You win out in all games that you're going to be favored in, and then you hope the Bills lose once, maybe even to the Bengals. Uh, If you do lose once, you got to hope they lose twice and and that the Bengals lose, which that's possible, too. The Bills have uh, a tough schedule, but you probably don't want to be banking on that. And and so I guess big picture now, obviously this is a team that, you know, their over-under in Vegas was set at 10.5, and... you know, they're, they're sitting there at 9-3 and three right now. They can actually clinch the AFC West this weekend if they win and the Chargers lose. And I guess big picture, if you went into this offseason as almost like a, you know, when you have Patrick Mahomes, it's never a rebuilding year. But to their standpoint, it was more of a retooling for the next, I guess, big window to strike in. Um, so I guess overall, big picture this is kind of just a result of that process, right? Like, you're not going to win every game. You lost to a good team on the road. You just kind of deal with it, I guess?
2: Yeah, I mean, the goalposts change so quickly. Uh-huh. Uh, Derek, I remember going on your show, and you asked me the preseason prediction, yeah. and I said 10-7 for the Chiefs. You know what I mean? And they're 9-3 and three now, and everybody, I mean, not everybody, but a lot of people are wondering, why can't they beat the Bengals? Is this is a flawed team. Is their defensive line no good? Like, how is it going to ever win again? And it's sort of like, Everyone, deep breath. <laughs> they're 9-3 and three now. They probably are going to be 14-3. and three, You know what I mean? Like, the end of this schedule looks pretty weak unless they drop an unexpected one. Or, you know, the closest game potentially is that season-ending game at Las Vegas. That one might be a five- or six-point favorite. But the rest of them are going to be nine or ten-plus. Um, yeah, this is a really good Chiefs team. And if you do zoom out and look at it that way and just kind of go back to the preseason, what you thought about this team, Patrick Mahomes is playing really well. He's probably going to be the MVP. That's really good. Um, the defense did not play well in the Cincinnati game, but at times they've won games. You know, they won the game at home against the Chargers. They won the game, uh, you know, earlier on, or at least kept them in a game like against the Colts where the offense was doing nothing. So I think there's positive signs. I think that uh, obviously if you were looking before the season with the 10.5 win total over under and said, hey, the Chiefs are either going to go 13 and 4, or 14 and 3, you would have signed them a sheet of paper immediately. But you're right, when it, when it comes to the Chiefs, like the standards just sometimes get a little bit wonky, and when it comes to Andy Green and Patrick Mahomes, when how well they played in that five-game win streak, it, they start to look un, invincible, and uh, then you play a team like the Bengals, who are really good in their own right. I mean, that third and 11 play that Burrow sealed the game on, I mean, that was just an amazing throw. I mean, Josh Williams' hand is right there. It basically goes right over the top of his hand. George Karlaftis almost tips it. Uh, Mike Dana almost gets to the quarterback. I mean, the Chiefs did about three or four things right on that play, but... This is kind of what Mahomes does to other teams. Sometimes you can play good defense, and the other guy is just better than you. And that's what Burrow was for much of that game. So um, the Chiefs will have more opportunities to face these types of teams in the playoffs. The Chiefs still, like you said, have a great chance of the one seed if the Bills uh, fall one more time. But, yeah, big picture, this is okay. And the Chiefs are going to be able to get a little bit healthier, too, and also get those rookies a little more experience, which, once that happens, they are going to be a dangerous team defensively, even if that wasn't the case on Sunday against the Bengals.
0: Well, I said this on on yesterday's show, the fact that, I think it was to the Bengals. Like like if you would have if you would have said, Oh, they lost a close game on the road to, I don't know, the Titans or the Eagles or the Vikings, right? It's not that people would have been happy or anything, but I think there would be less of this kind of like doomsday idea around the game. Because it's the Bengals who you've now lost three times in a row to, it's almost like, oh no, they're our kryptonite, what what do we need to do about it? But you look at each individual game, and in a lot of ways, the Chiefs I don't know, almost almost uh, made too many mistakes themselves in, in certain regards, but I, I am curious because you look back now to, to last season and this year, and I think last year they went 0-3 against the other division winners with the Titans, the Bengals, the Bills. This year you go 0-2 versus the Bengals and the Bills. You do beat the Titans, who are winning uh, that division. I guess the Ravens are technically winning their division, but for all intents and purposes, let's just say it's the Bengals. Um, at that point, is is there something wrong, or or is this just kind of nature of, of playing good teams with the target on your back in the NFL?
2: Yeah, so you're, you're probably asking the wrong guy if, if you're wanting somebody to just come out and basically say the Bengals are the kryptonite, they have the Chiefs number, the Chiefs can never beat them, all those sorts of things. I, I mean, the Chiefs were the favorite in all three of those games and lost all three of them, but I mean, all of them were three-point games, right? And one of them was an overtime, so it's not like... Um, this thing fell too far from what expectations were, and and the Chiefs, you know, I I do believe this when look their defense is really good when they play backup quarterbacks. Their defense is really good when they they face a team without a true number one receiver. Their defense is really good when they face a quarterback who is not Josh Allen and Joe Burrow. But when they face those teams, their defense has struggled a little bit. You know what I mean? Like when you face good offenses. Uh, the Chiefs defense has not really performed well against great offenses, and even if you just look down the line at the number one receivers, like, DeMonte Adams had a big game, and Stefan Diggs had a big game, and Jamar Chase had a big game, and so you can kind of go down the line and, and say, as of right now, the Chiefs sort of have issues when the other offense is good. I mean, if, if it has a, a decent running game, the Chiefs have been okay uh, most of the season, but, yeah, I, 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 the numbers rational guy in me basically just says, I mean, if you had a I know this isn't possible in nature, but if you had like a three-sided die and you rolled it once and you got one and you rolled the second time and you got one and you rolled the third time and you got one, are you going to look at the die and say, every time I roll this die, there's going to be one. it going to be one every time instead of two or three. I, I tend to think of it that way. And like I said, this, these games fell a little bit different, um, a little bit off of expectations. Obviously the AFC championship game is probably the biggest one since the Chiefs were seven-point favorites at home. But, you know Maybe more than anything, and this kind of speaks to more like the KU beat, how many times do you see a team out in out field where KU starts making the run and both teams feel like KU's going to win? That maybe is what the Bengals don't have, is that they don't feel like when things go bad that they're going to lose to the Chiefs. And I, I do believe there's something to that, that they have a confidence. They believe they can come back. They believe that the Chiefs aren't invincible, whereas maybe if you are the Titans and this thing happened to you in playoffs or, or another team out there, the Broncos, who can't beat the Chiefs, Maybe when things start to turn bad, you feel like the Chiefs are going to beat you, and the Chiefs feel like they're going to beat you. And all of a sudden, that sort of self-fulfilling prophecy takes place. The Bengals aren't scared of the Chiefs. So I think that's probably the thing that the Chiefs have to overcome now, is that they don't have that psychological factor against them. Do I still think if the Chiefs play the Bengals in the playoffs at Arrowhead that they'll be the favorite? Absolutely. If I had to pick one of those two teams to win, I'd pick the Chiefs. But again, um, the Bengals do deserve credit, and they have won the last three games. I do think they have that mental edge at the moment. Uh, but still, I, I think the Chiefs are a better team. I think that the Bengals are still really good, probably one of the best teams in the NFL. When you have Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase, and sure enough, this game, like many others, the uh, team oppose, opposing the Chiefs, they will get one of their top weapons back.
0: Well, Canarius Toney and McCole Hardman missed the game for the Chiefs. How much do you think that had an impact on the game, and in what areas do you think they most sorely missed those players in?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think a little bit. You know, sometimes you can... You don't know what could have happened. You know what I mean. You don't know if Kadari Tony would have broken a play, and that would have been ball game. That sort of thing. I think Joe Tooney was the biggest one they missed. To be completely honest with you, Derek, um, I talked about that late play, that third down where Holmes was sacked from behind. If you go back and look at that play, Creed Humphrey, who is Mister Stoic, never shows any emotion. He like raises his arms in the air and like fires him down. He was mad about something. And if you watch the play, Alec Reddy went to help Creed Humphrey on his block and left. Orlando Brown on an island. And you kind of see halfway through the play, Nick Allegretti kind of turns his head to look around to see what was happening with Orlando Brown. I don't know for sure. Again, I don't know the scheme. I don't know what they called in that particular play. But based off of of, uh, Allegretti's reaction and based off of Creed Humphrey's reaction, I have to think that maybe Allegretti was supposed to go out and help Orlando Brown and that Creed Humphrey made the call to say, hey, I'm good by myself over here. And so uh, Joe Tooney's just solid. Like, you just never hear about him. You know what I mean? Like, that sort of thing doesn't get messed up if Joe Tooney's on the field and some of the other pressure that Patrick Holmes got again came from the left guard side which is never a problem with Joe Tooney I mean he's just Mr. Reliable you don't think about him but you don't think about him for a reason it's because he's so good at his job and so these last two games I, I think they've missed him he has that ankle injury and he's never missed a game in his career before these last two games so I think getting him back might be the most important we don't really talk about interior alignment and for good reason like with pro football focus all those people you want to talk about you know what is the importance of every position? Interior offensive linemen is usually pretty low on the list, but when it comes down to crucial moments and you go back and break down some of these snaps, I, I do think it made a difference. And so, who knows? Again, one game changing play from McCall Hardman, Kadarius Tony could have helped with something, but I think some cohesiveness, uh, more cohesiveness with the offensive line could have helped as well, because I would say probably for at least the second straight game, probably the third straight game against the Bengals. The line play made a big difference. Uh, The Chiefs' defensive line did not get enough pressure, and the Chiefs' offensive line didn't hold up well enough. And so um, that has been one of the storylines the last few games, and I think part of that at least has to be due to injury. So if the Chiefs can get Joe Tooney healed up, then I like their chances a lot better than I did (laughs) watching that game off Sunday and watching some of the film where some of those mistakes were made.
0: This might be an unfair question because obviously you um, haven't, had the opportunity to, to be on the beat for the Chiefs the past few years, this being your first year there. But is, is it crazy to think Isaiah Pacheco is the best running back that Patrick Mahomes has ever had?
2: No, I don't think so. And I think you're starting to see that now Mahomes has some faith in him as well. Uh, one thing I might have written about if the Chiefs had won was the Chiefs got third and four in the red zone, and they ran a run-pass option play and Mahomes handed the ball off, and the Chiefs got a touchdown. Um, that's a big moment, right? I mean, you think back to last year's AFC Championship game. They run a run-pass option. The, the read is to get hand the ball off and give it to Jarek McKinnon and let him get some yards. Mahomes pulls it instead, throws it to a covered guy. Balls get, ball gets tipped up in the air, intercepted by the Bengals. It's one of the biggest game-changing plays as the Bengals make that comeback. So, yeah, I think it's a big development, and – We knew that Pacheco ran hard, but now you're starting to see him set up blocks. You're starting to see him run with some vision and run with some patience. And uh, credit to the Chiefs, you know, it's hard earlier on to watch Isaiah Pacheco and think, hey, he's going to learn this. He's going to figure out the blocking scheme. He's going to figure out how he can do all these sorts of nuanced things that veteran NFL backs do. But, man, about halfway through the season, he learned it. And once he learns that, it's kind of like what coaches want to do. They figure they can teach the teachable – but they can't teach a dude running 4 3 who uh, is in there, you know, knocking over people like a bowling ball. So that's really what Pacheco has become for them, and he's developed quite a bit. I would think for the Chiefs' sake, they probably want to get a little bit more out of their comfort level of Jerick McKinnon just always being third down back. I know they trust him in protection, but uh, right now, Pacheco is the more dynamic and more talented runner, and you lose something with when Jerick McKinnon is in there. So. We'll see how the Chiefs handle this moving forward, but it definitely looks like workhorse back for Isaiah Pacheco whenever they're in situations that are just not third down or two minute type situations. But if he continues to show what he does in the run game and is able to get some of those yards above expectation that he's been able to over the past few weeks, then I could even see a bigger role for him down the stretch, especially in the playoffs where every down matters and you can't leave some of those plays on the field.
0: All right, I have a kiss, Mary, kill for you to finish things off here. Uh, biggest reason, I guess, for why the Chiefs could potentially lose in the postseason? Special teams gaffes, the offensive tackles giving up too much pressure, or the pass rush on the other end for the Chiefs defense just kind of disappearing like it did against the Bengals? All right, I will kiss
2: the special teams gaffes just because it's a young unit, and we've seen them lose a game because of it. I mean, absolutely, Indianapolis. I don't expect it to happen. I think Dave Tope's is one of the best, but um, you know when the evidence is there. And obviously, the, the field goal kicking has been shaky all year. And we've seen the Chiefs lose playoff games in the past because of uh, special teams woes. I'll kiss that one because it's possible. I wouldn't put it at the top of the list, but I, I would definitely put it in the list of possibilities. Uh, I will kill the offensive tackles. I, I know that Orlando Brown and Andrew Wiley take a lot of heat, but the, the fact of the matter is, Patrick Mahomes is really good dealing with that, and he's been really good dealing with that, and evading pressure, throwing it away, and really elite quarterbacks are able to sort of work around that. Plus, um, before this past game, just to be completely transparent, William Brown had two of his best pass-blocking uh, games for the Chiefs of his career. So I know we always pick on him when he doesn't have a good game, but he had a couple good games before that. In a while, he's been good enough. Uh, I- I'm not buying this narrative on the tackles. I think Patrick Mahomes can work around that, and he has for most of the season. So I will marry the thought of the defensive line. I mean, If you can't get motivated for the Bengals, I don't know when you're going to get motivated. Chris Jones talked in the offseason about, hey, this is a game where he missed the sack that potentially could have changed the game. And I don't want to pin this on Chris Jones. He had the highest grade for Pro football focus uh, of the Chiefs defense, so he played really well, was disruptive in there. But, man, you got to do more. You got to do more, especially against the Bengals offensive line that's better than it was a year ago, but still gives up a lot of pressure to other teams. So, um, I'm I just figured that game they'd be motivated, they'd get in there, they would create some havoc, and they did not do that. So a playoff game where they are no shows, uh, I, I can kind of see that one. That that one I don't have to squint too hard at. So that's the one I would marry, and that was the one probably to still be fearful of, even though the Chiefs have gotten better sacks this year. Uh, to no show in a big game like that, or at least become close to no showing a game like that, I would say that is concerning and potentially. Uh, They might need a little bit of help on the interior defensive line. We'll see what they do this week after they release Taylor Stallworth. Looks like there's going to be some shuffling there to try to get some
0: things going. He is Jesse Newell. You can check out all his work covering the team in the Kansas City Star, KansasCity.com. You can give him a follow on Twitter, at Jesse Newell. Jesse, appreciate the time as always, man. All right. Thanks, Derek. That was Jesse Newell of the Kansas City Star joining us here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Nick Springer. I'm Derek Johnson. You're listening to FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. 5 o'clock hour. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on KLWN. With Nick Springer, I'm Derek Johnson. We have the return of Florida Man Mad Libs coming up in about 15 minutes from right now. I'm certainly excited. The the slate has been uh, wiped clean. We're starting over. But everybody knows I'm the initial champion.
1: You like, are the, everywhere the original. Everywhere I go, champion. I'm at the grocery store you're or whatever. The original. Somebody comes
0: up and says, "Hey, congrats on winning." No, you're the original for Florida sure. man Mad Lips.
1: But if I win the se- if I win this next stint doesn't of matter. I'll I'm always be the original. Well, I know, but we will be sequels uh, we'll never as good. Be, you know, we'll both be champions. <laughs> That's not true. But not sequel the sequel can be better.
0: I can think of name one times of situations where the sequel is okay, better. Okay, let's hear them. <laughs> That's what I thought. <laughs> uh Star Wars? I don't know. You think? I've never even seen Star Wars. You've never seen Star Wars? <laughs> no. Dude. Oh, my gosh. No, I've actually,
1: I've, this is I've actually not the first
0: movie that you have not seen, by the way. We've discussed this before, but I feel like most people have at least seen Star Wars. I have not seen Star Wars.
1: Not because I'm, like, on my high horse, like,
0: mm-hmm.
1: oh, I seen, I'm counterculture, I haven't seen Star
0: Wars. It's just I've just never sat down and watched it. I don't know. I want you to watch it tonight. You have to watch all of them, all nine of them, even the new ones. (laughs) Can't sleep. Sorry. You have to watch them all by the bowl game. I'm not doing that. Or you're not allowed to go. I ban you. (laughs) Uh, Something that I've found interesting uh, is, you know, in looking why has Kansas football turned it around this season? Obviously, there's there's a lot of reasons, and it's not just one thing, and it won't just be the thing that we're about to talk about here. But certainly this is a big thing that has led to that. And it is Kansas's play on the line of scrimmage. So I I wanted to look at how effective Kansas has been on the offensive line in terms of plays by the other team that resulted in tackles for loss on your end of the field last year versus this year, and also on the, the defensive side. How much Kansas has been able to create chaos with their defensive line in getting tackles for loss versus last season. And I go back to some studies that have occurred that basically, you know, on drives where you do get a tackle for loss versus drives where you don't, the percentage of drives that end up in points is like basically cut in half. And the amount of points that you give up, like points per drive, basically cut in half to where when you do get a tackle for loss, it sets an opposing team behind so often. Doesn't guarantee you're going to get a stop, but it just increases the chances so much so yeah, that you're I mean, going to do that. Yeah, it makes sense. It and makes so on sense. the flip side, as an offense, avoid tackles for losses, right? Yep. So 2021. That all, that all makes sense
1: to my pea brain.
0: Yes. Uh, let's start with the offensive line. Last season, 2021, opposing teams had 69 tackles for loss against Kansas. Essentially like six per game. That seems pretty high. It is. That number did get a lot better over the last three games, though. 57 of those 69 tackles for loss. We're in the first nine games, so about six and a half per game. Over the last three games of last season, um, they only gave up twelve, which should be down to four per game. And that coincided with, hey, what do you know? Kansas was a lot more competitive. Now you could true, say, yeah.
1: and they won. They won.
0: Yes, Texas. they won a game. They almost won the other two. You could say that. Oh well, the schedule kind of softened up a little bit, and maybe that's why it was easier and why you were better. But clearly, they just were better there. Yep. So looking at this year, you allowed 69 tackles for loss from the opponent um, last season. This year, you have only given up 51. It's a little over four per game. It's a lot better. I mean, that's, that's again, a very sizable jump. And yeah. if we include those last three games from last season into the 12 games this year, that means over the last 15 games of the Lance Leipold era, you have surrendered 63 tackles for loss. Over the first nine, you gave up 57. And I think
1: that confirms what we've... Kind of witnessed with our eyes on the offense is the offensive line has been the most consistent, maybe probably the most consistent unit on the whole team this season, right? I mean, they've been so good. Mike Nowitzki holding it down in the middle. Dominic Pooney was a revelation that came in at guard and was excellent. Earl Bostic, of course, was a senior on the outside, and they've opened up a lot of holes for the run game. And Kansas is in the top five in the country in, in sacks given up so far this year, right? So that I think that's a that's a really really strong. Confirmation of evidence of what we've witnessed on the field, what we've what we've seen with our own eyes, which is the offensive lines are really good. And like I said, like I've been saying for the past couple weeks, is the offensive line when you don't when you don't talk about them, they're doing a good job, right? And we haven't had we haven't had many Mondays where we've come in after a game and said, "Oh my gosh, the offensive line! Oh, they were terrible! Oh, they gave up sacks, whatever, this, that, or the other." And that this is this is just confirmation of that. Is this has been a really, really strong, really, really consistent unit that has been a pillar of KU's success this season, especially on the offense, when you consider what KU's run game was able to do, and obviously, with their pass protection, they've been really strong as well. So, I think that's a great indicator of, hey, the offensive line, a lot better this year than it was last year, and it makes sense, right? You get a, again, coming into this season, everything we heard from the offensive side, or really from the team as a whole, was this coaching staff really spent a good chunk of the first part of last season, like, just trying to evaluate what they had, right? They came in after the spring game in 2021, they didn't have a really a full camp or anything like that preparing their team. And so they spent a good chunk of the season up up to towards the end of the season last year just really evaluating what they had and just trying to figure out what was going on. And then you see that jump over from the last three games of last season then into this season of, okay, we had a full-off season. We had the opportunity to institute what we wanted to run offensively. We had an opportunity to build some more cohesion with the offensive line. I think... Did they lose
0: anybody from the offensive line from last year? I mean, is it the same? Besides Dominic Poonie, all the other guys are the same, right? Yeah, so Pooney entered in. Uh, I think they lost, was it Malik Clark? They lost one, but they had four or five starters back. Yeah. Now, yeah. they lost some so, of the depth, but yeah. So, so there you have that extra
1: cohesion of the offensive line, and look at the end result. You've got a a group that has played very,
0: very well this season. Mm-hmm. Which, which offensive lineman would you say is closest to Darth Vader versus which is closest to Darth Maul? Versus which is closest to, like, I don't know, Han Solo? Demo Grievous. Oh, uh, you, know, you know a character name. I Okay, listen. Well, I didn't watch the movies, but I played all the Lego Star Wars <laughs> games. I mean, give, give a guy some <laughs> oh credit here. Gosh. Dude, well, nine-year-old movies. me was all up in there on Lego Star Wars. Uh, by the way, Matt Llewellyn texted in and said, you need to watch them tonight. <laughs> so he... I have another text too from someone else that says I can't believe he hasn't seen them. So you need to you need to do this anyway. I know uh, I know I know the story and everything. I played I played Lego Star Wars. That doesn't count. How does that not count? It's Lego Star Wars, dude. That's like anybody re- who talks bad about Lego Star Wars I, has no. Totally you have to watch the movie. No clue. You're about like the video guy games. who's like I don't need to watch the movie. I'll just read about it on Wikipedia. That's not true. No, it's that's ruin no. the fun. That's not even the same thing. Similar. because the if anything the video game is even more immersive
1: because <laughs> oh you're God. literally the one doing it you're the one experiencing it so explain that Derek huh? explain that
0: okay um, if you're the
1: one doing it then it's even more immersive than the movie
0: <laughs> okay defensive side of the ball chase Kansas last season <laughs> they had 43 tackles for loss from the defense so you're talking about three and a half per game And again, similar to the offensive side, completely changed over the last three games. The first nine games of the season, Kansas had 26 tackles for loss, which is less than three per game. Bad. Yes, not good. Then the last three games, they had 17, so like six per game, which is good. This season, those numbers are up to 57, which is... A little less than five per game. They were trending yeah. even higher than that for a little bit there. Uh, but again, if you go back and, and include the last three games of last season, and then you look at the, the 12 games this season, over the last 15 games, you have 74 tackles for loss. Over the first nine, you had 26. So, you know, you, you went from about three per game to about five per game. It's not maybe as much of an overhaul as, as the offensive line, but it still is a big improvement. And you continue to see, like, when KU is at their best, certainly they need to be better on the third and longs that after you get a tackle for loss, you take advantage of it. But um, at the end of the day, as much as the defense did struggle at times this year, they still were, like, a touchdown better than they were last season, and that's a big reason why. Yes.
1: And obviously, you bring in Lonnie Phelps, a guy who you expected to be sort of an X-factor on the D-line, and he was in some games, right? That really boosted your stats there. and. You bring in some linebackers that are faster, guys like Craig Young, and obviously you have the the development of Berry Hill and Rich Miller, and those guys had some success this season. So, it again, it, it makes sense, right? I mean, and it makes sense that the defense as a whole, as you said, a touchdown better in points per game, so it would make sense that they are better in other areas as well, including tackles for
0: loss. Yes, and so just overhauling it on, on both sides, they went from – Last season they were minus 26 in the tackle for loss category to this year they were plus 6. Clear indication and I don't I don't think,
1: I don't think you'll find another program maybe in history that's had that significant of a jump. Right? I mean, some of the, like with tackle for loss stats, I mean, those may not have been tracked as far back as
0: whoever knows, right? But like
1: that's a significant it is. significant jump. I mean,
0: 32 uh plus 32 in tackles for loss over the course of a season. That that's a yeah. huge difference and it's like it's one thing with the transfer portal. You can be like, "Oh, we brought in this great running back or this great." It's hard to overhaul an offensive or defensive line because it's a whole sure. unit. It's a yes. bunch of guys, especially the offensive line. Exactly, and like and it like comes I said, with like strength and conditioning that takes a lot of time.
1: Yeah, and like I said, as much as Lonnie Phelps was brought in to be an X factor guy, obviously he was hurt for some games, right? It wasn't just. It wasn't like he just came in and had all the uh, t- tackles for loss, right? On the other side, you know, it's. The continuation of the cohesion of the offensive line, right? So it's not just, it's not just oh, you brought in one guy and suddenly
0: voila. Mm-hmm. He's Nick Springer. I'm Derek Johnson. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Next, the return of Florida Man Mad Libs. Kansas City Royals have a new player. They just, uh, nope, not a free agent signing. One out of the Rule 5 draft. Sherwin Newton, third baseman, who taking Bobby Witt's spot. It's official. Okay. He <laughs> doesn't even play third mix. I know. Well, he did last year, but they're going to move him to short this year. Um, we're going to try to have David Lesky on uh, probably, I don't know, sometime next week or something to, to kind of catch up. He just had a baby, too. What's up with that, dude? Matt Tate, what is up David with that? Lesky, all hmm. our guests having babies. The So the real what's going on over there. <laughs> <laughs> I love it uh, well the actual hey what's going on yeah, over there that, not is, that does have to deal with balls in a different way that would be baseballs and uh, this is certainly an interesting story especially at the heels of last year in the MLB uh, So this, yeah, there's a lot to unpack here Yeah, this story comes from Bradford William Davis of Insider and I'm going to be reading some different excerpts from the piece i highly recommend going to check it out i'm not going to read everything here um also some of the stuff i'm going to get to is like out of order in the article but uh just kind of segmented it out in certain ways because basically the mlb has i don't know this is like the new it's it's not to the same level as like the steroid type of stuff but certainly well, interesting, there's, there's, there's always going to be controversy of course there's always
1: going to be controversy there.
0: yes so um The story starts out talking about Justin Verlander, like back in 2017, noticed that the balls used in the World Series were slicker than normal. Last year, Insider was the one that reported that there were two distinct types of baseballs in circulation during the 2021 season, something that the league had not disclosed at the time. But when they were called out about it in the aftermath, they admitted it. Uh, But one ball had a center weight roughly two and a half grams heavier than the other, making it further uh, or carry further off the crack of the bat. You might be saying two and a half grams. That's nothing. We'll get to an excerpt here coming up later in the story that shows you just how much that can have. Um, Chris, uh, there's all sorts of like MLB players who spoke up during this article and, uh, and kind of talked about this. Chris Bassett, who is a free agent pitcher right now, should get a nice little payday. Good player. He said, MLB has a very big problem with the baseballs, and they're bad. Everyone knows it. Every pitcher in the league knows it. They're bad. MLB doesn't give a damn about it. We've been told our problems with the baseballs. They don't care. And then, so at a press conference in uh, July, before the All-Star game, Rob Banford, commissioner of the MLB, acknowledged that the league had used the two baseballs. After the insider report came out, which is certainly interesting, they didn't do it beforehand or during the aftermath. Kind of like a, oh, we got caught, we better fess up to it. Um, but he also he chalked the ball variants up to COVID-era manufacturing issues at the Rawlings plant in Costa Rica, and the league claimed it distributed the two balls randomly for use in games, which is certainly sure. interesting because randomly, part of the study from last year was that they found that most of the games with the ball that jumped more were like Sunday night baseball games (laughs) or games on national television. (laughs) Certainly interesting, Rob. Mm. Uh, But Manfred promised from the podium that was all over. However, according to a new analysis, uh, more than 200 balls used in games during the 2022 season that Meredith Wills, who is a Society for American Baseball Research award-winning astrophysicist. That's a great title. Conducted, that is not true. League used not just two balls this year, they used three balls. What? This year. Three. Ba-bum-bum. How dare they? <laughs> uh, so they have the, the different three ones. They have the, the lighter one um, that is less bouncy. Then they have the more dead end balls. And, and those, those are little, two the two from last the year. Dead end balls right? are the ones that they claimed they were going to use for this year. Yes. Yes. And then they have the the third ball that got added in this year that was not around in 2021 but was for twenty twenty two. That for the purpose of this story, they deemed the Goldilocks balls because they said not too, you know, in Goldilocks it's not too warm, not, not too, too heavy, cold, not too just light just right. You know? And so those ones are just right. Not in terms of them being just right in terms of those being the best baseballs to be of use, maybe they are, but in that they're in between the super dead ones and the super you know yeah, bouncy so the, ones the more i got into the story the
1: more i began to question who
0: is the leading authority on determining what
1: the best baseball is that needs to be used in games somebody right like cuz like,
0: somebody i don't it, know who cuz
1: like what like what i mean obviously if you're a pitcher you want a ball that doesn't travel as far mm. and obviously if you're a hitter you want a ball that travels further so how do who is the who is the who is the main authority on this because it certainly isn't the MLB. They just no. make whatever baseballs they want.
0: Yeah. And so there were a bunch of balls that had different, like, basically weights, which could come from, uh, you know, wounding the core tighter or different ways that you can do it. And it might only be one gram or two grams of a difference. Again, you might be wondering, well, is it that, is it really going to change things? If it is only the difference between a few feet, who cares? Well, a one gram difference in baseball, just one gram, nearly imperceptible to some can be significant when played out. The Korean baseball organization decided to deaden its ball in 2019. It did so by increasing its size slightly and adding a gram in weight. That's one, it. One gram. One gram. Home runs dropped by a third. That. Let me repeat that. One third of home runs were gone. So if there were, if a team hit... If you had 100 home runs yes, in, the, in the regular season. Yes, and now you know, 65, 66, 70, right? Yeah, 66. That is insane for one gram. So to act like, oh, it's just a small difference, who cares? No, it has a very big difference on on how so games are going.
1: So BNLB has this story where they repeatedly claim, and I'm sure to get more to this, Derek, where on the inference says... Oh well, it's only natural to have a standard deviation of the weight of baseballs because each baseball is lovingly handcrafted <laughs> right. and handwoven, and so it's only natural that with all these
0: handcrafted baseballs, there would be some deviation in the weights. Yep, sure, sure. Whatever you say, man. Um, Will's the the researcher astrophysicist found that heavier balls were made in certain weeks lighter balls made in other weeks and Goldilocks balls made in still other weeks. And the importance of that is so if you peel open the baseball, it has like the basically stamped on there the the manufacture date. And so if it was, if it truly was something where what you just said, where it was just, hey, it was the handmade balls, like sometimes they're gonna be made differently. They're gonna be stored differently at different temperatures and humidities, then you would think the differences in how the ball reacts They would all have like the same batch date or around same batch dates where they weren't where it was just like, okay, clearly they were all made the same day, but now they're performing differently. That would make sense. The fact that all of the lighter balls were made in different weeks than all of the heavier balls than all of the Goldilocks balls and that each one classified into its own were made on different dates kind of tells you that, yes, they were designed differently as a whole. (laughs) One player told Insider that one of Manfred's top lieutenants warned a players' union official not to let players send any balls to Wills after last year because of the fact that they had... Uh, a different, you know, article about this. And so they basically said no third-party testing. They warned that the league could fire any non-union team employees who helped their research. Uh, but nonetheless, they still amassed a bunch of baseballs from sources around the league. Yeah, I think they ended up with 204 different baseballs. Yes. And uh, this part of the story is hilarious to me. Like, you've got a
1: natural physicist st- testing baseballs, and MLB is like, hey, you
0: mm-hmm. can get fired. We're going to blacklist. Crazy, dude. We're going to blacklist this, this lady from... Using our baseball. Imagine being in an organization where you're like, you know, third-party testing is a bad thing. We want to know <laughs> less information because clearly they're trying to cover something up. So this is super interesting, too, part of this article. The Goldilocks ball, so the one that is uh, not quite as as springy as the, the yeah, other one from de- last de- year. It seemed to be, I guess, slightly juiced yes. is how you would term But term definitely it? Really definitely more juiced than the than original juiced. one that they used in the other games. Okay, it was yeah. found in most in one of three situations, postseason games, including the World Series, the All-Star Game, Home Run Derby, regular season games that used balls with special commemorative stamps, such as the Texas Rangers 50th Anniversary Ball on the outer leather. So keep in mind, the games where most of them were nationally televised, right, where a lot of people are tuning in, Yeah. World Series, postseason, All-Star Game. Hey, we're going to have a large TV audience. Why don't we make it a more entertaining game? Higher runs, more home runs. <coughs> the, the, this, is, this is where it gets super interesting, too. The only Goldilocks ball we obtained from the regular season that did not have the commemorative stamps were from Yankees games. Oh. But you might be saying, okay, what's what's going on there? Well, if you might have remembered, Aaron Judge was in the midst of a historic home run chase trying to pass Ooh. Roger Maris's. American League record and what some consider oh, a record. Oh, you mean San Francisco
1: Giant Aaron Judge. No, nope. oh, that Aaron nope. Judge.
0: Wrong guy. Oh. I hate you. Arson Judge? No, that... Not Arson him Judge either? Judge is a giant. Arson Judge is forever oh, okay. a giant. Aaron okay. Judge is not. Okay. The Sorry. Yankees... This is interesting, too, because some of the Yankees' pitchers were like, what's going on with the ball? And... The Yankees were one of the few teams that did not meet with Rob Manfred, according to pitcher and team union rep Jamison Tyon, who is still waiting for a meeting with the commissioner as late as October 2nd, the last Yankees' home game of the regular season. He never got to speak with Manfred along with Yankees' teammates. Tyon did recall one league official approaching him in the locker room during the second half of the season to see if the veteran pitcher had noticed, quote, anything different about the baseballs lately. Okay. Here is what I will say about this whole situation. And, I,
1: I dude, mean, any, is I'm sorry. any
0: Yankees fan who's like, this is the real home run record, eat it. <laughs> eat it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, listen. This is just my opinion. I, I'm just. This is just me. I'm a fan. I, other people can feel differently. I don't care what baseball you use. I don't care if you use the dead ball, the Goldilocks ball. You can make up any name for the baseball, whatever baseballs you want to use. I don't care, right? But I think... The heart of this story that you're try- we're trying to get to here is just be transparent about yes. whatever you're
0: doing. Yes. Right? Like, I don't care what baseball use, or you use. You juice the that. ball all you want. Just use the one. If you want to use the juice ball, great, but use it for every game. It shouldn't be different game to game, right? Exactly. I don't care what ball you use. Yes. I don't. No, now, I, understand. I prefer the juice ball. I'm now, good with the juice ball, but use it for every game. I understand
1: that, you know, pitchers and whatever not would probably have some gripes with that, but uh, as from a fan perspective, we don't care. So, to, to quote Stephen A. Smith, we don't care. Okay, I don't care what
0: what baseball you're using. Just a little transparency is all we're asking yes. for, I think here. So they say in the article we don't know whether judge hit a goldilocks ball on his way toward breaking the record but we do know that the league keeps track of information that would permit it if it wanted to know which balls gets used in each game to where they could hypothetically say we want these balls in this game we want those in the other one and according to two sources familiar with the mlb's ball shipment process the league not only directs where its balls are sent it also knows which boxes its game compliance monitors see what That's crap. Yeah, an MLB source who asked not to be named to protect them from league discipline, uh, but whose identity is known to insider, said that before each game, the league's game compliance monitors, quote, record the batch number. In this case, a six-character label placed on each Rawlings box and the quantity of baseballs used for that game. Then the league source said compliance monitors send an email to the supervisors with that information. And as as part of this, you have like certain players who are trying to help with the study because they see this and they're like, something shady is going on. San Francisco Giants outfielder Austin Slater, who needs judge when we got Austin Slater, came across the story in 2021 and wanted to get to the bottom of the issues. So when he uh, expressed the desire to collect balls, to send to Wills for analysis, he received a warning from the commissioner's office. Stand down, send to the form of a text message came via a players' union official who was relaying the league's executives' displeasure, and Slater said that the MLB executive specifically mentioned that the league does not want any game balls going to Wills and that the league could fire anyone linked to giving out baseballs. The threat worked. Obviously, if you're a player, you're not going to get fired. The team isn't going to say, we're yeah, releasing I mean, you for this. Yeah, I mean, but, who cares if you're hitting juice baseballs? Yeah, Slater was—he's a part of the MLBPA subcommittee. He was worried about non-union staff who might have—like somebody who was a part-timer— or working in the clubhouse that went and retrieved the ball for him, getting punished, and he didn't want somebody else uh, helping out. But that just kind of shows you that clearly something's amok. If the league is basically denying all this stuff in public, but then under or trying to be under wraps is telling people yes. like, no, don't do this. You Anytime I mean? you're
1: issuing a stark warning of don't do anything, that's like the, that's like the
0: rule number one of the yeah. red flag. Like, It I doesn't take Sherlock Holmes to figure out <laughs> something weird's going on. How about some of these quotes from players Clayton Kershaw? Um, sometimes you see the exit velocity and the launch angle, and you put it together, and that should be, go- uh, and that should be going home run. Like the guy hits it 105 miles per hour at a 30 degree launch angle, that's probably a home run everywhere. But sometimes, for whatever reason, the same guy hits it the same way, and it's an out. Um, you have yeah, Max- I mean, I mean. <sighs> There's so many different other
1: factors you could point to for besides sure. the baseball there. Like I don't know how true I mean, you know No, for sure. If it's a colder
0: day or if it's a hue more yeah. you know, whatever. I mean, I don't I don't know if I buy I don't know how much I buy that. This one from Max Scherzer. I mean, these are notable pitchers. If a baseball is random, the way MLB described it, you would see a rainbow of flavors, of weights on baseballs. Then, um but if you see two distinct weights being manufactured, then it's only rational to assume that you know how to make the two weights. And if you know how to make the two weights, that's then that's intentional. Not random. But that's a good point. That kind of refutes the yes. idea of, oh, each hand, each baseball is hand-crafted, hand-woven. Why wouldn't you weigh them after you make it? <laughs> he adds to it, when you have numerical data suggesting what you have, the finger does get pointed at the MLB. And that's completely fair for the players to ask the question. We don't feel like we're being told the whole answer. Last quote here from Nick Castellanos. There's a drive to deep left. No. Uh, In the NFL, there was deflate gate. It happened one time, and people were punished. Here we use multiple balls and nothing happens. Well, I mean people were kinda of punished. Sure. Sort of. Wait, for this? No they No, weren't. for no for for Deflate Gate. I think did I read that wrong? It said he happened one time and people were punished for Deflate Gate. Anyway. No, but I'm saying like Deflate Gate was like they were kinda of punished. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Sure. So something needs to happen, but nothing probably will. So. Yeah, long story short, even we don't really know what's going on over there. No, not really. He's Nick Springer. I'm Derek Johnson. Jesse Newell, Kansas City Star, talks Chiefs with us next on The Other Side.